This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. But tonight, what better way to celebrate than showcasing the work of our guest tonight who wrote 500 Days of Summer, The Spectacular Now, The Fault in Our Stars, The Upcoming Paper Towns. I know some of you are really excited about that. So please welcome to Pollock Theater stage screenwriter Scott Neustadter. Thank you. Thanks. Opening question. The following is a work of fiction. Any resemblance to persons living or dead or purely coincidental? So the obvious first question, did Jenny Beckman defriend you on Facebook after seeing this movie? Yes. <laughs> yes, she did. That's a true story. Uh, have never spoken to her ever about what she thought of it, uh, but the day came out where she's from. I lost a friend. Oh. <laughs> so obviously that leads very well to the next question. How much of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is based on you and or your writing partner, Michael H. Weber? Yeah, this one um, is mostly me. Uh, I did this to myself twice on two different occasions. Uh, and um, Weber, uh, was my, he's my old friend from, from New York when I used to live in New York. And we always wanted to write a, uh, a relationship story. Um, like our favorite movies, Annie Hall, and, and those kinds of things. We just didn't have the relationship we wanted to, to write about. Um, and then I went to, uh, to England, and this happened. And, uh, and as it was going on, he was back in New York, and um, I was sending him emails. And it was, the emails were, um, so last night, we went to this place. I said this. She said this. I should have said this, right? And then this would have happened. And it was very much a, a dissection of... This, this crazy relationship where I never really knew uh, what anyone was thinking or feeling. And I was so uh, embarrassingly like that. Uh, and um, and we, we got back and we sort of, I had this idea of how to tell the story. And once I had that, I was like, you know what, maybe we could do something here uh, that wouldn't just be funny to you and I and people who knew me and wanted to laugh at my nonsense. Uh, maybe we could write something cool here and... Um, and then even when we were done, I was like, it's too personal, it's too close. And I left it on my computer for uh, about six or seven months. Um, and then I was so bad at my job that I got quickly fired and was like, okay, I'm either moving back in with my parents or I better show people this script. Uh, and that was really the, the impetus that got it out there. Yeah, how different? Obviously, it's always a good idea for screenwriters to write from personal experience. How do you say objective when it's you know, very personal? In this particular case, I didn't have to because it was very much about... Um, uh, a warped mind, someone who had seen too many movies, would listen to too much sad British pop music, and who uh, you know was just believed that the idea of love is supposed to be a certain thing. And I could write from that sort of perspective uh, and be extremely one-sided, never ever tell her story, her side of the story. Uh, hopefully that's very clear early on that we're doing that on purpose, that uh, she doesn't get a fair share at this. Um, and, uh, and that's part of the problem. If, if you know, uh, People always say, well, why don't we... I wish you could tell it from her perspective, or why don't we have any scenes where she gets to, to say what she's thinking or feeling, and it's, it's very much you're in the, the mind of this character, and if he knew what she was thinking or feeling, half of this wouldn't happen. So um, that's really the, the, the logic that we, we stuck, you know, uh, stood behind. We had written one scene where she stops and she says, excuse me, I just want to say right now that is not at all how that happened. And she proceeds to kind of tell the story, and, and Webb and, and Weber and myself all said, yeah, good idea, but we can't. It breaks the logic uh, of the storytelling. Um, so, so, yeah, he's very romantic, <laughs> uh, but also obsessive. How did you handle that balance to keep it kind of 
<clears throat> None of it's that's true at all. Uh, that was all fictional. I, I don't know, honestly. Um, I, I was I was thinking this was a, a very much a, a cathartic thing. Uh, I had been broken up with, didn't understand why, could not accept that it was just because she didn't feel the same. That was impossible. And then a minute later, she got engaged, and I was like, "What in the world?" And uh, <laughs> and so we were uh, we were writing. To just like put it all out there, and the the balance kind of happened naturally. Um, at one point, I think it was probably uh, 200 pages of stuff, and there was no. It was a 200-page first act. We weren't going anywhere. We didn't know what the point was. What story were we telling? And when I heard that she got engaged after no time, um, I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm totally over it by now. I promise. <laughs> at the time, it was like, wait, what? Um, when that happened, I was like, oh, that's the story we're telling. We're telling the story about, about how the, you, you can't make someone love you, but that doesn't mean that you, there isn't love in the world and that you can't find it. And um, it really quickly turned into a screenplay from there. But that had to happen in real life. I'm not that imaginative. <laughs> so. Well, and I like it because she's actually very upfront and honest from the beginning. In the story, she's yeah. like, you know, he, he didn't listen. In a lot of ways. I would not have defriended someone who did this to me on Facebook. I thought it was a very balanced kind of... She doesn't come across as a, as a terrible person because she's not a terrible person. She just didn't feel the thing. And you can't be upset with somebody for the simple reason that they don't feel like you the way you feel like them. Um, I eventually got to that point. I'm sure the, the beginning of the script was all ah, angry, Jenny Beckman bitch stuff. But, <laughs> but eventually you... Uh, and the character realizes it too. It is not her fault. There are no... There's no one's fault uh, involved. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's, that's what that is all about. It's actually much more true in relationships. Where it's hard to accept. Yeah. When you're in it, you're like, no, I'm the hero, and she's the, the villain. That's how it goes. Uh, or vice versa, you know. Um, and um, that's probably not accurate. Uh, everyone tells their own narrative of the, of the story. Um, and so we wanted to sort of explore that a little bit and, and have fun with it. Uh, I do like some, there are some surreal moments in the movie. I, my first one I've been dying to talk about, all my students have been asking about, the musical number. We've got hand solo, hole and oats, imaginary birds all at the same time. Right. Where did that come from and how did that evolve? That was, uh, Weber and I had made a list of um, relationship moments. Uh, and he was in a relationship at the time uh, with his high school sweetheart. They'd been living together for five years. They'd been together for 12 or something crazy. I had been on two third, third dates in my life. Uh, and we were, you know, we had made a list, and his list was all of the things that you do in relationships when they're comfortable. And mine was all this up the mountain crazy stuff, the first this and the first that, and then the horrible, disastrous breakup stuff and the fighting and then the, all that stuff. And that's, none of his scenes really, none of those scenes actually make it into the movie because it's a very roller coastery ride. And, uh, and one of the things that we had thought would be really fun was how does it feel after you get that first kiss or that first more than kiss, whatever you want to say. Um, and what is that next day like? It's you, uh, especially when you put someone on a pedestal and they beca- it becomes this challenge. Um, you know, if I do that, it would be the greatest experience of my entire life. So how, how does that feel? Um, and, uh, and we just let our imagination run wild. At one point in the script, um, the Hamburglar shows up. I mean, it gets really... <laughs> It just gets crazy in that parade. Uh, Hollow Notes themselves were going to be in the thing until like a week before. And and one of them, I don't know who, pulled out and said, eh, this could be silly. I don't want to do it. But it was very much a, 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 you know, we loved that song. We loved them. And um, it just worked. 
uh, and then we had a, uh, on the DVD, if, if you guys are interested, there's the reverse of that moment. There's the, when you're feeling at your lowest, what is that like? And he has the same kind of parade uh, sort of thing, but everyone's giving him dirty looks, and yet bird shits on his you know, <laughs> shoulder, and it's not as, it's not as fun. But, um, and I wanted to do that to, uh, to uh, She's Gone, the other Hall Note song. Yeah. But it was also really funny if you did it to the same song. Um, <laughs> I don't remember which one they used on the DVD, but but anyway. I like the guys high fiving him walking by. The wink, like they knew it was that happened. That is, I remember sort of like you know when something great happens, you and you're living in that bubble. Um, and we this very much was a, a, a story that's completely in his head. Um, even the scenes, there's some debate about the final bench scene and whether or not she's really there, if he's just imagining it. Um, oh, interesting. So there, there's a the, the language of the movie is we're only getting this from his perspective and. A lot of times that uh, doesn't necessarily have to be the most reliable um, to the truth kind of thing. Uh, and also the great moment where he smiles, goes into the elevator, and you cut to 300 days later. Right. And that well, fa- is totally disheveled. Yeah, when I, when I hit upon sort of how to tell the story, of the, the thing that um, we were really excited about was the opportunity to juxtapose moments back to back. If you don't tell the story in a linear fashion, you can put... Uh, the time in which you told this joke and she thought it was hilarious and then the time when you guys were in the middle of things not going so well and you told the same joke and now you're a a horrible person and you put them back to back and you see that time is really the the villain, not the people um, in a relationship that's not going great. Uh, And that's that's an interesting question. Did you write 1 through 500? How did you guys (laughs) want to... And then mix it up or always have it there. We had that list of scenes that we were working on. And then one day I, I got a yellow legal pad and I just went down and numbered what would be interesting. And, um, and the, I did it in one day. And the final version of the shooting script, I think, is almost exactly what that was. Uh, and when Mark Webb came on, he, he kind of sat down and, and could have said anything. We were like, oh, God, there's a director now. It's not ours this could go very badly, and all he wanted to know was why. If you can justify every uh, cut and every you know, um, non-linear choice, then we can go with this, and, uh, and we were able to do that. We could tell him why this worked here and didn't work there and stuff, so that was cool. Uh, you mentioned uh, being in Tom's head, which is, you know, the whole movie's about that. The, the scene that actually the students actually kept on asking me about to ask you is the scene where he's depressed coming out of the party, uh, and the, the landscape changed into the drawing. Mm-hmm. How, that, how did that kind of connect? Where would that come from? Yeah, it was written into the script. There was a whole sort of architecture thing. He, um, he had uh, sat with her and kind of, um, she was inspiring him to design again, to draw the buildings, and, and the whole cityscape was happening on his arm and, and all that stuff. And then at the end of that sequence, when the world came crashing down, you'd literally watch the world sort of come, come crashing down. Um, and uh, the, you know, we didn't know what it was going to look like. We didn't know what a lot of this was going to look like. Um, when we were writing it, um, it's really easy to write. Reality goes up the stairs, expectation goes up the mm-hmm. stairs. But to actually sort of watch it was uh, was really fun. Um, so yeah, that, that's uh, where that came from. And the reality expectation scene is actually one of the, also one of my favorites. Uh, so that it, did it really deliver what you'd hoped for? Because Beyond, it, uh, it was really um, that's my favorite scene in the probably my favorite thing I've ever done. Um, but the. Uh, the fun thing about that is that it was not in the original script. Um, we got one note from the studio, and the, the note was, um, there's no, you don't have to do a regular three-act structure, but it would be good to sort of tease the three-act structure, and the way to do that is, is to come up with a way in which the audience is going to think they get back together, whether they do or they don't. Um, and of course, in the original draft, 
which was based in reality, there was no chance of them ever getting back together. <laughs> Why would anyone want that? Um, so we didn't have that, and then we kind of came up with the, the sequence of uh, uh, they're stuck on a train together, and they have this sort of nice night, and she invites him to her house, and he thinks again that this is, the door is opened, all he has to do is walk through, and then everything comes crashing down. And of course, I, I don't like to do anything um, that's easy. So I said, you know, it would be really cool if we do the version in his head and the version that actually uh, manifests, um, which was totally based on when I was in college, which was a very long time ago. And on Friday night, I remember like getting dressed to go out. And it was going to be the greatest night. And it was never the greatest <laughs> night. And I always remember the difference in like going out and coming back and the, what happened. And I just, yeah, we, we ran with that, and, uh, but didn't know how he was going to shoot it, and Mark didn't know how he was going to shoot it, and he did a Maroon 5 video. He was a music video director at the time, and um, still is, but also a, a film director. But uh, he did this Maroon 5 video to test if you could pull it off, if the audience would get confused, what, how many seconds you needed to, to do, and, and all that stuff. And uh, we, when I first saw that in edit, I'd get emotional thinking about it. It came out so great. It's my favorite thing I've ever done. And this, well, and the thing is, and also I think a lesson for screenwriters is you can do a lot without dialogue sometimes. Even your script, it says that, you know, the expectations, and it allows the director to come up the imaginative, mm-hmm. and allows the actors to kind of have some room to breathe, but you know what they're feeling and what he's feeling. Yeah, yeah. No, just uh, make sure that everybody kind of is on the same page uh, on the day, because otherwise it could get real, real funky. <laughs> uh, but in this particular case, we, we were all very, uh, everyone knew what we were going for. All right. All right. So greeting cards. Uh, how did that come up as the crappy job? Well, I was working in a, in, uh, in the, for a film company, and uh, it wasn't that it was a crappy job, but it was uh, unfulfilling. And when you're when you're broken up with and you're not fulfilled in your daily life, you sit around and this can happen. You get in your head a little bit too much, and you make you send crazy text messages, or you know you do dumb stuff. Um, and we wanted it to be a character who was doing something in his life that he didn't wasn't the thing he wanted to be doing, and he was too afraid to pursue that. Uh, and this person that comes along uh, that he thinks is going to be the person he ends up with has a different gift for him that he didn't uh, expect or didn't even recognize. Um, and it's someone who sort of inspires you to be the best person, even though they don't love you the way you love them. And uh, because I was working at a movie company at the time um, and wanted to write, I didn't think that was a far enough kind of thing to go. But a, a greeting card, uh, which is like you know, the most disposable thing, and then architecture, which is the least disposable thing, maybe that could be a fun sort of juxtaposition. So that's what we were thinking about. And it's interesting, you know, I mean, Summer did inspire him. So all the relationship thing, it made him quit, ultimately. Yeah, we talk about this sort of as um, uh, summer is a, uh, it's a, a phase of your life. It's, it's almost, it's something you, someone that um, comes along and, and um, you attribute all of these wrong things and you don't see the real sort of thing that happens. And um, relationships and, and romance and love are not one-sided. Uh, but for this person, he's very much, it's all about him. And he's not even listening to her when she's describing like, you know, something that she's never told anyone before in her life, his first sort of response is like, well, then I must be pretty special that uh, you're telling me. And it's like, it's not about you, dude. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I was, I, I, that was all fiction also. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's also curious when you're, writing, when you're writing, especially comedy, because my favorite line, 
you know, when they said, uh, you know, they used to call me anal girl. <laughs> That's your favorite line? <laughs> no, it just like, cause it was a clever, it was a clever line. And it was like his reaction to it. Because I knew what she was talking yeah, about. We, I knew it wasn't like, right. you know, anything insidious. How does that evolve? Is that something where you come up with that line and build it around or you begin to hear her voice in your head? Like, uh, would she say that or his reaction to it? Well, I don't know. I definitely didn't have it in mind. It was sitting at the computer and writing and then coming up with a, with a random joke. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of those throwaway jokes because uh, it's really not that kind of a, kind of a movie. But um, they do help. And, and um, when we, we wanted to, every single... Uh, pop culture thing makes an appearance here. You have a fairy tale sort of narrator. You have cartoon birds, and so we were like, let's do a spit take. Let's have one where he literally like old school comedy <laughs> spit take, which you would never see in this kind of story. Uh, and so we have a, we have something for everybody, and, and a, you know, little piece of of that that's that went in there. I really enjoy the greeting card. The thing that made me laugh the most was the roses are red, violets are blue thing, oh, and um, <laughs> and we had to write like fifteen alts for that punchline because they weren't sure that you could say the f word in a pg-13 movie and and so it was a whole thing and we were like you know roses are red violets are blue i'm right behind you like we came up with all these like (laughs) we had so many things that were not as good um but we should yeah that there was right yeah i'm not funny but i made myself laugh uh that day you You are allowed one F-bomb, I think, is the rule. Yeah, I think we had... You're allowed one F-bomb, and then you you can say it as a verb. Or (laughs) some other... I don't know. There's a way around it, but anyway. I don't know how they arrived at that. We have two in there, I think. (laughs) Snuck two in there. Uh, Also, the karaoke scene is one of my faves. Uh, Also, screenwriters, the exposition is always hard to do, but you use the drunk friend to pull Summer out. Another trope. Yeah, yeah so is that was always conscious, like how are we going to get them to have a scene together where they're both saying what they're feeling without feeling forced? Is that used him for that? Yeah, probably. Uh, I don't remember like um, exactly how it went down, but um, Jeff Aaron is so funny, and, and he's a really talented guy, and he's the kind of guy on set that makes you laugh, and, um, and he just brought a lot of energy, and they all play off each other in a nice way, and Joe you know, picked his song, uh, and some, you know, Summer. Zoe picked her song. And um, yeah, that that was a really fun day to shoot. And of course, the every moment that I'm sure everybody's experienced the awkwardness when you're supposed to go in for the first kiss and you blow it. Yeah, that was that was always in the script, um, and that was also real life. Um, and uh, but it also sets up his character. He was misreading the signal. Yeah, yeah. When we talk about the macro of the movie, it starts out as a guy who can't ask a girl out, and it ends with a guy who can. Uh, and that's the lo- like it, in movies, you'll never see a shorter arc for a character in the history of movies than that one. Um, but uh, but that's really what it is. It's he's not comfortable as who he is, and he doesn't have anything in his life that he's excited about and proud of. And he puts everything on this person, and it drowns her. And it's you know it's impossible for her to to have a good relationship with somebody who does that to you. It's, it's so wrong. Uh, but at the end, maybe. He'll get it together, and he'll have learned from some of his mistakes. There's some debate. Uh, in real life, totally did. <laughs> but, but, yeah. <laughs> that was a great moment with Autumn. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's... Uh, all right, so then, a little brief question. Chloe Grace Moretz plays the sister, well beyond her years. Do you realize this probably helped her get the world of Hit Girl? Because she was so badass yeah, in this movie. We, we, uh, I, I didn't do that, the casting at all. I, I can't take credit for that. Um, but we definitely had our eye on some great 
uh, future talent. So um, yeah, it's cool to cool to visit the early works of. And it's interesting because you picked the younger sister, the one to be the kind of the voice of reason, the relationship expert. Mm -hmm. How do they, is that based on real life, or you know? You I was that? I'm 11 years older than my little sister, and I just um, at the time she was probably uh, 13 or 14, and. Um, I was acting like a 12-year-old. So, so it was very much like the, the natural thing would be if I had a conversation with my little sister about this, she would be like, grow up, what's wrong with you, stop it. And uh, it just grew from there. And as I asked him out. Uh, curious, one question I've always had. Uh, what did Joseph Gordon-Levitt bring to his character that surprised you? Something like, wow, you know, that's a really interesting take. Everything. Or... No, ev every single thing. He, he, um, he blew everybody away. He's the most natural guy. He really um, cares so much. Uh, he, uh, he, there was a scene in there in the script that um, he, he pulled us aside and said, really? And we were like, shit, you're totally right. He would never, <laughs> he would never do that. And uh, we rewrote it to be the movie. He falls asleep in the movies, and then the movies are happening, and he, he envisions himself in the movies, which was a version of something that we had, but it, we were very much trying for comedy, and he wanted the, the pathos. I think he always brought the grounded to it. Um, and then at the end, he, he, he's looking at the camera as, as another kind of great uh, button and, and a, a way to sort of say, like, you're in here, this is it's still a movie, and, and all, all of that stuff. I think um, he's just a super gifted guy. And same thing with Zoe. Did anything kind of surprise you? Like, wow. Yeah, I mean, she, what I loved the most is that she understood that um, she was being put as a, she's sort of a, a marionette in a way. Uh, he's controlling everything. She's kind of just has to respond to, uh, to Tom's every kind of thing. And there is a version of that that uh, is un very unappealing, and she becomes a villain very quickly and never rebounds. But she sort of was, was like, I'm, I did nothing wrong. I, I do nothing wrong. Uh, on a, like when she's mad at him for having the fight, uh, you can understand that, you know, she didn't, this is, she's her own person. And, you know, um, I just thought that uh, she really owned it which was helpful because that's what we needed. That's kind of right. A lot of people don't realize that often the screenwriters don't get a chance to work with the actors or take notes. How, how great was it in this feeling like you're, part, you know, you're all part of the same team? No, it was, it was so great. We, um, you know, Webb was on the movie for a whole year before we were filming, and so we became friends, and there was a lot of, like, you know, I want to make sure you're on set every day, and even during, you know, during the shooting, occasionally you would film the punchline to a joke three weeks after you filmed the joke. And other times, you would film the punchline two days before you, you even filmed the joke. And so he would say, he'd come over and he'd say, why isn't this funny? And I'm like, because they're just saying a lot. Don't worry, when you edit it, it will be funny. This is what that is. When you're, when you're making a movie, you definitely forget. You're focused so much on, you're shooting scene 157 today. Here's what you have to get. And you forget that in, the, especially a movie like this, there is a lot in the edit that's going to make things make sense. Um, and so it was, it was very, a, a huge privilege to be invited and included. Uh, and and all, you know, Weber and I have, have been fortunate to work with people um, who've been that way, um, who don't view the screenwriter as an interloper uh, or as someone who's going to get in the way on set, just as, as another sort of voice to, um, to bounce stuff off with and to make sure that, it's, that we all have the same vision. That could be the disaster when the director and writer are not in sync. The director then hires another writer to rewrite, and then that's when things can start falling apart. Yeah, I think uh, it's, easy. it's easy to go wrong. Uh, people think writing is sitting at a computer. It's the one thing that you can, um, everyone can do on their laptop, or so they think. And so there's definitely, um, it's easy to forget. Uh, and also, I, I think there's, 
if you were especially doing something that's a comedy, what was funny in January may not be funny a January later because you've read it so many times. And so a lot of people, for, they think that you know, newer is better, but sometimes newer is just newer. Uh, and it's helpful sometimes to remind them, like, this is going to work for people who've never heard it. You've just heard it 300 times. So. Interesting. Um, so is there anything from the movie you wish, any scenes like, oh, boy, I wish they could have put it in there? Or something like any sequence, like, oh, I know it didn't work or it wouldn't have worked, but... The, the sad day after thing, the saddest day ever, did not work. Um, uh-huh. And it really sucked the air out of the room when you watched it. And, um, but it was, had it worked, uh, had we figured out how to make it work, I think it would have gotten a really big laugh. Um, but other than that, we're, we're really happy with how things turned out and, and just very grateful uh, and gratified that people seem to like it. Obviously, the audience had a great time. They were, uh, thanks, yeah. Thanks for, <laughs> it was, uh, for coming out. All right, let's change gears for a second, talk some, a little about your other work. Uh, Shailene Woodley. She has been in Spectacular Now, which you ran her over with a car. <laughs> Fault in Our Stars, which she had terminal cancer. Are you actively p- picking material? She can that handle could... it. She can handle it. She's, she does everything. <laughs> she's, uh, she's really amazing. and uh, uh, you know, We're very privileged to get to work with somebody like that. That was one of the questions. So is it something where you just in sync? You think like her, her acting and style just lends to your screenwriting? Where just the characters and you guys are just... Yeah, I don't know. I think we, we, uh, we write really difficult things. There, there's a lot of talky stuff going on, and, um, and not every actor wants to, to sort of do that. And um, she's just really great. And like Joe, if something doesn't feel right, she would call us over and she'd be like, was this really how you were seeing it, and we were like, you know, it makes sense, and there's a lot of um, back and forth. Uh, I think a lot of times there are actors who are like, I don't want to say that, I want to say this, and you're like, well, here's what, here are all the reasons why that's not what gonna, is going to work here, uh, and then they do it anyway. But, um, but people who, like, you know, Shailene is somebody who really wants to make sure that it feels authentic, and that it's real, and that it's true to the character, and she knows it better than we do. Um, that's a, it's such a gift to work with people like that. So it sounds like Joseph, Zoe, Shailene, there is a pattern here of... We've been really lucky. ...collaborative with yeah. the writer. They like the collaboration and growing the character. And as well they should. Uh, they, um, it's their responsibility to, to kind of um, make sure everything um, is on point. Um, and, you know, we could sometimes be slaves to a story, but all of these performers, they have to, to sort of um, make sure that their characters are real and, and authentic and uh, there's no false notes. We had uh, Miles Teller at one point have to say the spectacular now, like in the thing, and he was like, "I won't do it." And we were like, "Well, but it's it's in the book, and he says it, and it works." And he's like, "I won't do it." And we we're like, "All right, fine." And then it was so good that he didn't do it because it would have been as absolutely as cheesy as he said it would. <laughs> and that's the thing, like all your work, and we'll talk a little spectacular now. You don't shy away from the darkness, even younger. I mean, you know, she's he had teen, he's abandoned by his father. Uh, alcoholism, and but also also light and funny in places. Like he has a great sense of humor. Are you yeah. attracted to these kind of movies? A little yeah, they're, they're movies edgier. we grew up with. Every, everything we love um, is this kind of like happy, sad thing because they're they're, uh, they're they're it's real. I always I, I didn't grow up one of those um, the kids who loved Star Wars and Indiana Jones. I watched all these Woody Allen movies, and and I liked seeing myself uh, and identifying with people as opposed to um, doing sort of um, the fantastical stuff and um and so those are the stories that we kind of gravitate towards uh they tend to be a little darker because there's a lot of dark stuff um in the real world so uh but hopefully you know we we um we always try to find the hopeful at the end the end of the book spectacular now is real bleak 
and, uh -huh. um, and so we wanted to tweak that just a tiny bit so that it isn't it's horrible that nothing good is ever going to happen again in the world. Um, and we talked to the author about that, and he's like, ooh, I don't know, I'll have to see that. Uh, and so when we, because he, I think, was afraid that we were going to make everybody walk off into the sunset and live happily ever after, which we would never do. Uh, we don't like happy endings, but we do love, love hopeful ones. It was hopeful, and in a lot of ways, 500 Days of Summer. I mean, he does have hope where he's acknowledging, you know, yeah, I want seeing I, the truth. The the ambiguous kind of conclusion where you can go into the theater and have a conversation with your your friend who you went to the movies with and say, "I loved at the end when this happened," and they can go, "Wait, really? That's what you thought? Because we thought this." That's my favorite thing. Uh, so we always kind of it's the end of the graduate. I'm obsessed with the graduate, and I always have been. And um, the end of the graduate is this. I always thought the happiest ending ever, and then I got older and I realized, holy shit, this is not that happy. There's this is there's some problems here. Yeah, if you go back and watch The Graduate, look at Dustin Hoffman's face. Right. Really, the last shot when he realizes, I'm going to be with this her forever. Yeah. It's not. It's awesome. <laughs> he's like, uh -oh. It's so great. Uh, so. so the Graduate shot where Zoe's in bed naked, and he's in the standing in the... Uh... There's so many illusions. We, I mean, we, we, are, we say it out loud. We reference it. There's scenes from The Graduate in the movie. Uh, and so that, that we're not hiding from the fact that that is my be-all, end-all favorite piece of art that ever was. <laughs> okay, so... If you haven't seen it, go now. Go watch movie. it. It's like, don't do your homework. Forget finals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how scary was you guys to write the script for Fault in Our Stars that had a passionate fan base that would have destroyed you guys on Facebook, Twitter, and hacked your iCloud? Yeah, account? we... The, uh, the good news about that is that sort of when we got hired to do it, it hadn't yet become the sort of global phenomenon that it became. So there was not... There were... We wanted to deliver because we love the book, but there wasn't like the... We will, we will come to your house with a pitchfork kind of thing. Um, that started real soon after we had finished the script. And, uh, and there's a lot of stories of, of like, um, someone had like a Twitter of the, a word of the day or a line of the day thing, um, and it would always be things we didn't use. And I'd be like, we're going to get killed. They're going to kill us. Um, you know, somebody has tattooed this line on their body. They're going to go see the movie and not have that line in the movie. It's like, we're dead. Um, and one time, I was like, oh, my God, I love that, too. We have to find a way to get that in there. So it was really interesting. Like, you know, you want to deliver for the fans. There are things that you can't get through that, that just wouldn't work. Uh, and then occasionally, uh, because of modern technology and this really cool thing where we can actually uh, interface with the people who, who love the stuff that we're doing, um, they tipped me off to something that I had missed and real quickly went and added that. And um, so it was great. Is there any funny thing that a fan came up to you and said, oh, you cut this from the book? Well, there's a few subplots that people are always like, why isn't his ex-girlfriend and Fallen Our Stars and all, all of that stuff? And I was like, well, I mean, we could have done that, but we tried to keep the focus on this other thing instead. And um, a movie can't be three hours long. And, um, you know, every, any, any book um, to film adaptation is a lot about editing. It's a lot about shaping. You're not going to be able to sort of lift everything and just drop it in and it'll, it'll work as a film, especially something like Fallen Our Stars, which is... You know, pounding horrible things happening for a good hour. You can put the book down, you can walk away, you can come back to it at your leisure later on, but in a movie, you're sitting there, you're not going anywhere. Uh, and so you can only kind of give the, the roller coaster so many ups and downs before they go, okay, enough already, that's a joke. Was there any like scene that you were most worried about challenging? Like, I've got to get this one right? Or was there anything that you were just kind of like. In Fallen Our Stars? Yeah. Everything. They had to be right. I mean, 
It really was a, a very important thing. Uh, a lot of people had read that book and uh, connected with it and were moved by it, and myself included. And so, um, you know, to to deliver on that one was something that was super important to us. Okay, so uh, we talked a little in the green room. So, Paper Towns, the mm-hmm. next John Green adaptation. What is that? What is that one? Oh, I'm oh just you're, you're working on some other movie. Some of the students are asking. I know we can't go too deep into it because there are some things you know yeah, we have to say. But it we... starts uh, shooting in North Carolina soon. Are you gonna, and it's the same. Are you going to be available on set, or are you going to? We'll be there a little bit. I think. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm sure uh, John will be there as well. We'll be reporting from the region, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I hope, I hope people kind of like it. And um, unlike Fallen Our Stars, this one does require a few changes um, to uh, to make it a movie. But um, but yeah, I, I, it's a cool book and a lot of fun. Very different kind of a experience. Not enough, you know, not as many tears. Uh, but um, but hopefully uh, people will enjoy it. Uh, before we open it up to the audience, just one quick question about that. Be honest, and we'll edit it out if you don't. You know, you don't like this answer. Is John Green like the video blogger, the nice guy we see, or is he really like William Defoe's character in Stars? <laughs> no, he's an extremely nice guy. It's almost <laughs> insane, uh, and um, he's just a good person. He who's super talented, and uh, we've had a great time working with him, and we're very happy that he likes what we're doing with this stuff. Because if he didn't, we'd be gone. <laughs> So uh, you guys got some passionate fans in here. We have some mics that are going to be circulating. So Joe, uh, we'll be calling on you if you have any questions because I can't see anything. Uh, could you explain what the difference is between a story about love and a love story and why you needed to warn us about that? It's <laughs> a very good question. Um, well, I think that uh, we were playing with the, the, the vernacular of the, the romantic comedy, which... Um, a lot of this was uh, written in uh, retaliation for the way in which romantic comedies had been made. Um, we had just uh, hated them. And when we were younger, uh, some of them, like, you know, The Graduate's kind of a romantic comedy, and When Harry Met Sally is an amazing romantic comedy, and Annie Hall's was one of our favorite movies. So um, the way in which they used to uh, work, we loved. Um, and they were about the relationship. So they were love stories about love. The comedy would come from the relationship and not from like they go to the zoo and an animal attacks and it's so funny because that happens to everybody. Um, <laughs> and, and so we were kind of, you know, just writing against that, that kind of thing and then realized that um, in this particular one, if you, if you say up front it's not going to end well, no one believes you. So the best way to kind of surprise an audience is to say in the beginning, here's what the ending is going to be. It isn't going to be a happy thing that you're all expecting because you've seen these movies a million times. Um, and everyone goes, yeah, right. And they wait for the ending where they kiss and then and everybody's happy. Uh, and we got a lot of feedback of like, I can't believe you did that. And we were like, well, why can't you? We told you we were doing that. And, uh, and that was just really fun for us. And so um, this is a, it's very much a, a love story because it's about the concept um, but it isn't a lo- the love story that you're used to and have seen before. So we just kind of wanted to make sure we say that up front so that uh, you can react accordingly. Do you know if uh, Jenny's still married? <laughs> I do know, but I can't tell you. <laughs> it's complicated. That's an awesome question. Thanks, awesome. Hi. Um, I, was cur- over here. I was curious why you decided not to show... Uh, directly the relationship with these characters and their parents? Because I saw that you kind of alluded to it, mentioning that they're divorced. And I know that that's a big thing in The Graduate, kind of both generations. 
in uh, 500? Yeah. Yeah, there was, a, there was a few scenes in the script about his family. They shot one of them. They, um, they wound up being uh, just dead weight. They weren't, they weren't really doing much. That's probably our fault. Um, but, you know, we weren't really, we, we didn't want an excuse. Uh, you know, both of their parents were divorced, so it doesn't excuse anyone's behavior or, or why they would think a certain way about relationships or, or romance or love. Um, and so at the end of the day, it was just something that, that um, didn't need to exist in the movie in order to, for us to make our point. Um, and it wasn't funny enough, and so it just wound up being cut. And, but yeah, but good question. Hi. Um, how do you go about writing scenes like the one in the train where they're getting coffee together and it's just music over the, the sound and they're, they have to move their words as if they're, t- or move their lips as if they're talking? Um, yeah, I think that uh, we probably did have dialogue written out for that, um, uh, and, and but I think we we had at that point um, we knew Mark was involved in the movie. We had seen some of his music videos. Um, I had uh, I had initially thought of Five Hundred Days of Summer as like thirty two music videos, and you know that's <laughs> kind of how I always always wanted them to hire a music video guy because I loved moments like that where you are feeling something but you don't need them to say things uh, in order to make sense of the scene. Um, and we had them stuck on the train, then the train started moving, um, and, uh, and the idea was they're falling back in love, or certainly he is, and anything you say is probably not going to be as impactful as just watching that and, and seeing his face and, uh, and all that stuff. So, um, so yeah, how do you write a scene? You, you can just write, uh, here's what I want the audience to feel. Uh, in this moment, and uh, probably move on to the next one. Kind of lets the director and actors figure Sometimes, out how to capture the moment. Directors have to do something. <laughs> <laughs> it is usually all about the writing, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yeah. Someone over there. Hi. Um, is there something in particular that draws you to writing stories about love and romances and stuff like that? Um, I don't know. It's, uh, those always have been my favorite movies. Uh, we, we kind of always wanted to write stuff that we would want to go see. And, uh, and they're all relationship stories. Um, that's, that's the only st- kinds of stuff that's interesting to us. Um, two people talking movies. Uh, often it's a boy and a girl, and so there's feelings involved and stuff. But um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. We, we, um, escapism, uh, there's, there's a place for that. People love movies like that. Um, we always gravitated towards the ones where we were identifying characters. And I don't know, when you're young, what are you doing other than trying to make girls like you? <laughs> so much of the film is all based from his perspective, but if you were to try and look at it from her perspective, how different would the story be? Yeah, I think it would be a 180. It would be completely different. Um, and, and we've been, people have said we should write that movie, and I refuse to even entertain it because I don't know the answer. Um, that was really the, the, the big sort of disconnect. Uh, in real life was I didn't I was so solipsistic focused on my own stuff um, and uh, wasn't listening enough didn't really know um, and uh, so I think her version of this particular movie um, he would probably make he'd be in three scenes that's what I think Um, how does Summer sort of fit into this uh, manic pixie girl that comes into his life and like Change it, changes it, I guess? Yeah, well, we, we intentionally kind of um, were taking, we're, we're trying to take that down. Um, we're making fun of that idea. Um, and 
sort of um, people, I guess, were expecting it to be a two-hander because when you have this kind of a movie, it's boy meets girl, and you're going to get to know both of them equally, and they're each going to be three-dimensional characters. And we didn't want to do that. Um, we wanted to make to make it smell like a two-hander, but it's completely not a two-hander. Uh, and you know, it, it, it is true that this is a character who enters and changes this person's kind of life, um, but that's his problem. And he has to do all the growing up, and he has to change. Um, and uh, so it's, it's really, it was more of an attack of that uh, idea than a celebration of it, or a, this is like, I mean, movies like Garden State are very much like that. Um, we wanted to kind of like um, show you that that's a problem. If you think that someone's going to enter your life and change your life, you have to do it yourself. Um, she, she, she gives him sort of like the gift of you have to look at yourself and your own failings and um, you are responsible for all the bad in your life, not anyone else. Uh, and, um, and kind of that's how we were, we were going after it. Can you explain that scene at the beginning where Summer's cutting her hair? But it doesn't really seem to mean anything later on. Can you explain what it means? Um, somebody who kind of... Uh, was um, really, really loved her hair and then was super willing to just get rid of it in one second is someone who um, is trying to figure out feelings and, and um, what's important to you and what you care about, what you don't care about, what you can live with, what you, can't, what you uh, need in your life, all those things. It was just sort of like an encapsulation um, that's probably completely false because it's, again, all coming from his perspective of like who this person is. She's someone who would love something and then get rid of it like that in one second and not even think about it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's again, it's something that like he's projecting into the world. It's, I'm sure that never happened. All right, two more questions. Oh, we got you up there. So how did you go from writing uh, your stories of, from your own personal experience to adapting books and what was, what was the biggest challenge of adapting The Spectacular Now and The Fault in Our Stars? Yeah, good question. I mean, uh, there are very different kind of experiences. Um, having written something that was super personal and, like, a little too personal, um, it was a, a breath of fresh air to take somebody else's story and, and work on that. Um, and so we were actively looking for a book that spoke to us. The other genre besides the rom-com that we kind of missed was the, the teen movie that was more honest and R-rated and um, not kind of um, either about f having sex with pies or vampires and stuff. Um, we, uh, so we read that book and we really liked it and we were like, can we, can we do this? And everybody was like, no, you're crazy. And then Fox Searchlight, who had made this movie, um, they were really excited that Mark Webb and Weber and myself all love this book and we're going to do it together. So they said, okay, we'll do it. And then Mark got the Spider-Man thing and then they gave us the book back and they were like, if you guys can set it up somewhere or find the financing, um, then by all means. Uh, and it took like seven years to do. Uh, but um, we really enjoyed the adaptation process. It was, it's, um, it's a lot like creative problem solving versus uh, pure kind of creative insanity where um, I find myself deleting almost everything I write. And um, at least when you have a roadmap or you're, you have a, I have a scene that I have to write from this book, what are the best things to do? Where does it belong in the overall structure? Those are kind of really um, 
there are right answers for the first time. When you're, when you're writing a script and it's an original, there's no right answers. It could be this, it could be that. It's all very subjective. But when, you're, when you have a, a game plan and a goal and you have something that you need to accomplish, you can actually do it right or do it wrong. Uh, and we love that. So we've been doing um, these books and um, just having a really great time. You get to be a fan first. You're never a fan of your own original idea. You're never ever like, oh my god, that was so great. Um, but you can read a book and be like, this is awesome. Like, I would love the opportunity to make this into a movie. So um, we've been having a great time. We've been writing originals at the same time. Um, so the, the, the really fascinating thing is that studios are looking at material that's already sold some books. And, and um, they think that that translates into selling some tickets. So that they're making those a lot faster than they're making original ideas. Um, which is another reason to, to do them, if you're me. Yeah, last question. Hi. I just wanted to ask you two questions. The first one is, uh, what was your selection process for the music for 500 Days of Summer? And the second one is, um, I feel like there's a lot of quirky stuff, both in The Fault in Our Stars and 500 Days of Summer, in which the audience kind of feels like they're interacting with you know, the characters. You, know, you can read the texts. Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, the fault in our stars, or you know, in Five Hundred Days of Summer, there's these like little intertitles in which you're understanding at what point of you know the timeline you're in. So, could you explain a little bit more about that process? Yeah, sure. Um, for the, sec the second question, we we approached Five Hundred uh, um, very much uh, as uh, the kitchen sink approach. What idea? There was no idea that we weren't going to try. Um, we have, again, cartoon birds and split screens and things coming at you and the parentheses and the titles and the seasons and it's really just a smorgasbord of stuff. Uh, and um, that was really fun and um, I was just so, so worried that um, no one was going to like my love story ever, that I had <laughs> all these things thrown in to mask that there's nothing here, it's just me whining. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and so that's really, I think, what, what it was. It was piling on all of these kinds of things that um, you know, would mask that it's a story of a guy who can't ask a girl out to a guy who can. Um, and then Fallen Our Stars, the texts and, and all those things were, um, uh, I think, a, just a, a way to, um, to indicate how nowadays that is sort of how we're talking and, and how people are... Uh, there's less phone calls going on than, than texts, and we wanted to be as honest as we could. And obviously, um, we, we have some fun with that, and um, it's it's nice to look at. Um, but uh, but yeah, we, we always try to shy away from too much sitting in front of a computer and um, uh, any of that kind of stuff that would be boring to watch. So we just um, I don't know I, I I respond to those things, so I kind of like to write them in. Um, and then as far as the music, uh, I would say about seventy percent of the songs in the movie were in the script. Um, either because that's the song that was playing at the time, or um, you know, the Holland Oates was a, was something that um, we thought would be the best thing. And I'm like a Smiths dork, and so I just every possible Smiths reference throughout. And uh, and yeah, and then Mark had a lot of relationships uh, from his music video days that we were able to get for cheap, uh, and we were making a low budget movie, so that was really helpful. And some of those songs are are my favorite in there too. So um, I hope you like the music. That's awesome. We have our last question. We always ask the same question. Can you tell us about a movie theater experience you had growing up that meant something to you, special maybe going to your family or some special movies? Yeah, um, I was thinking about this the other day. The, um, I remember uh, going to see Dead Poets Society with my grandmother oh. on like a Saturday afternoon and uh, just walking away being like, if I could ever do that 
for a job, that would be the coolest thing. And I didn't know what job or, or even, you know, what, how I could participate. I certainly never had any um, confidence in my talents. Uh, so it was, it was any opportunity to get involved um, I wanted. And I went in the development side first. So I got a job uh, reading scripts and then um, kind of segued into uh, writing them myself. But I always remember uh, leaving Dead Poets that afternoon and being like, I got to figure out how to get involved in the movies. That was one of our first script screens. We brought the writer Tom Schulman. Great right. movie. And then Amazing. Very autobiographical, too, which is ironic. Same thing. <laughs> I didn't know that. With him. Uh, well, I mean, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks that for coming, everybody. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Uh, I want to thank our sponsors, the Department of Film and Media Studies, the Carsey Wolf Center, and writer, director, alumni Scott Frank, who's actually now funding the Script of Screen series. So thank you. And uh, please come back to our thank next you. show. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.